Hey everybody, this is Cale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. My brothers, my sisters, I have a serious question for you. Have you been saved? Have you been saved? Maybe you've been asked that question by a very well-meaning non-Catholic Christian friend, or maybe even a stranger. Sometimes that happens. And no doubt, these people are very, very concerned about you and your welfare, especially your eternal security. How does one ensure that they are saved? Well, one of the verses that people often go to when they're asking you this question, we're going to look at today in Romans chapter 10. So why not open your Bible up with me to Romans chapter 10, and we will start with verse 9. And here it is. St. Paul writes, Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, maybe somebody's given you that promise. Is it that easy? All we have to do is confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, and we'll be saved. Well, it depends what you mean <laughs> by the words that are in this verse. What does it mean to believe? That's a great question. I'll get to that in just a second. But, but this idea of confessing with your lips that Jesus is Lord, that is a very, very short creed of the church. Now, we're very familiar with the Apostles' Creed, with the Nicene Creed, a little bit longer. If you really want to have some fun, check out the Athanasian Creed. That's, that's a good time right there. And uh, Google that. Uh, great thing to pray through every now and again. But Jesus is Lord is actually a little statement of belief. It's a creed, biblical concentrate, if you will. And St. Paul mentions this in some of his other letters. In his letter to the Corinthians, his first one, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Let's check that one out. I'm just going to flip open to it. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 3, he says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So this, this idea of uh, if someone's cursing Jesus, clearly they're not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Maybe another spirit, uh, the, the kind that you don't want. But no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so this is the gift of faith in order to, to believe and, and, and to say this creed. So let's look now at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 11. This is a, a beautiful passage in Philippians. Um, the great song of Christ, the Carmen Christi, if you will. And I will look this up for you right now. This is Philippians chapter 2. And here's what Paul writes here. Uh, he said, well, I'm just going to back it up a little bit, actually, to verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, that's Jesus, the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, now here's verse 11, Philippians 2.11. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this little creed pops up again and again in the New Testament. And this, speaking of Philippians, something in writing to this city of Philippi, one of the first converts there was, of course, the Philippian jailer. And hearing this, this statement from Paul, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, if you look at the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, this is the famous account of 
Paul and Silas, they're, they're in prison for their faith. They're beaten. And as they're in the prison, about midnight, it says, starting with verse 25, Acts 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. So praising God can bring about earth-shattering events. There's no question about it. And so no matter how, how bad things look in your life, and, and there are people listening to Relevant Radio right now from a prison cell. We have lots of inmates that... Um, write to us every month and thank us for the encouragement that we give. And so this is what happened here. The, the prison, now I don't know if this is going to happen to you, but the prison doors are, 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 are open. Everybody's chains are unfastened. And it says in verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped because it was his responsibility. He was going to pay with his life one way or another. And he was about to do himself in, but it says, Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, men, what must I do to be saved? Okay, I, I buy into your message now. I've heard you singing all night long, singing and praising Jesus. Well, I want some of this for myself. What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So we have something very similar to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 here. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. But that's not it. We got to keep reading a couple verses more. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house his wife, his children, uh, anybody else who was living or working there. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he probably inflicted a lot of those wounds. And he was baptized at once with all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced with all his household that he had believed in God. So what's the next thing he did? He believed, and then what? He was baptized. He was baptized. And this is exactly the prescription that Jesus himself gives us in the Gospel of Mark. At the very end of the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. So I'm flipping open to it right now. Here's what it says. The risen Jesus. He says, uh, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. So belief and baptism go hand in hand. And so baptism has something to do with this, with salvation. Um, it, it doesn't mean that everyone who is baptized will be saved, but everybody who is saved must be baptized some way or another. Water in the Spirit, that's the normal way. There's also baptism of blood, martyrdom, and baptism of desire for those who were seeking Christ, seeking the truth. Maybe nobody preached them the gospel. Right before this, Jesus says, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the precursor. And Paul's going to talk about this next, that we do need to evangelize so that people can believe and they can be baptized. Baptism of desire. They're looking for Christ. They're looking for the truth. Maybe nobody is there to explain the truth to them about Jesus. And that's where we come in, you and me. So this is really, really important here. 
When Paul says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let, let's let's talk about this whole idea of belief. Belief does not mean mere intellectual assent. That's not what it means. I know certain things. I, I know that George Washington was the first president of the United States. I know that the Declaration of Independence was signed on July the 4th, 1776. I, these are things that I know, historical facts about persons that I know. It's not enough to know about Jesus. We actually have to know him. We have to have a relationship with him. And sometimes uh, when our uh, non-Catholic Christian friends and family members say, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? They, they do have a point there. We have to have that living relationship with him. It can't be at arm's length. It can't be... Jesus can't simply be a guy that we know about. We actually have to know him. We have to be in relationship with him. But this idea of belief, what does it mean to actually believe? It doesn't simply mean to know about. And this, again, goes back to the gospel, the gospel of Mark. When Jesus first appears on the scene, this is after the preaching of John the Baptist, John says, hey, after me comes someone who is way mightier than I am. I'm not even worthy to loosen the thong strap of his sandal. And it says that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan, an incredible experience. He immediately goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by the evil one. And then after John was arrested, it says in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. So you've got to repent. That means you've got to turn away from your sins and your sinful ways. You've got to pull a 180. Stop being AWOL and come back to God. But but that's what, what, it, what it means to believe is to become obedient to. To become obedient to. It doesn't mean mere intellectual assent. It means to become obedient to. And guess what? The very first prescription is be baptized. So it really does go hand in hand here. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. And so that's why it says in the very next verse, back to Romans 10, verse 10, For man believes with his heart, and so is justified, and he confesses with his lips, and so is saved. Now this idea of, of salvation, Paul uses the word salvation, justification, that initial forgiveness, almost interchangeably throughout his writings. And in verse 11, the scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. That, that is a very, very, uh, that's actually a reference to Isaiah 28, 16 in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. That's the one probably St. Paul was most familiar with. Certainly would have read in Hebrew as well. But he's kind of using the, the Greek text here when, he, when he's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. What does it mean to be put to shame? No one who believes in him will be put to shame. That's a reference to a condemnation at the final judgment at the end of time. Some will go away into shame and everlasting contempt. That's what scripture says, the book of Daniel. And some, the righteous, will shine like the stars forever and ever. So th that's what that means. If you do trust in Christ, if you do adhere your, your entire life to him, commit your whole life to him, become obedient to him, you will never be put to shame. And, and he will be there for you. Uh, at the last judgment. He'll be simply Jesus, as one saint said. He won't be a harsh judge in the strict sense of the word. He will simply be for you, Jesus. That's great news, because the name Jesus means God saves. Joshua. 
All right, let's keep going here. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this is really interesting because this he's given another Old Testament quotation here, as Paul does all the time here in these chapters. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quotation from the prophet Joel. Chapter 2, verse 32. It's a prophecy about the Messianic age. It's a prophecy about the Holy Spirit being poured down on all flesh. And by the way, this is exactly the same prophet that Peter quotes in his great Pentecost sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 21. What does he say? Well, now everyone's cut to the heart. It is great preaching. What, what shall we do? How can we be saved? He says, be baptized, every one of you. This promise is for you and for your children. Everyone, even the far-off ones who the Lord our God will call. So again, the link with baptism and salvation here. It, baptism is normally necessary for salvation. It's all super, super important for us to understand here. All right. Well, let's go now to these last few verses here in chapter 10. Let's pick it up at, at verse 14. Paul writes, but how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all heeded the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Hmm. Another beautiful quotation from Paul. Again, it continues in verse 19. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, let's let's unpack that a little bit here on The Faith Explained with Cale Clark. So glad you've joined me today here on Relevant Radio. Okay, so Paul makes a very, very good point here. People can't believe in somebody that they don't know about. So we have to be sent out to them. And he quotes Isaiah once again, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Now it's interesting because this quotation comes from Isaiah 52 verse 7, and it's actually about an individual person. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him, an individual who brings good tidings, who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so it's interesting. Again, this is Paul's great use of the Old Testament here. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those, plural, who preach good news. I think he's talking about himself and all the other apostles and also you and me, every single disciple throughout the nations and throughout the world and throughout history who become missionary disciples. Missionaries right where we are, uh, sharing the good news with every single person that we meet in various ways. But here's the deal. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough message for some to swallow. In verse 16, 
They have not all heeded the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now, why is it so tough to believe? Again, he's referencing Isaiah, this time Isaiah 53, that very famous passage about the suffering servant. You got to read this if you haven't already at some point in your life. Wonderful prophecy about the suffering of Jesus Christ. And it starts off by saying, who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Why is it so difficult for people to believe, especially many Israelites to believe this? Because this idea of a suffering Messiah, not a conquering Messiah, well, he will conquer, but that that is going to be part two. That's the second coming when he's going to come in glory and power and vanquish all of his enemies. And even Jesus alluded to this, this two-part uh, coming of Christ in his famous sermon in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. He's quoting Isaiah, and he talks about the day of salvation of our God, but he leaves out the second half of the verse that he's quoting, the vengeance of our God. He, he, doesn't, he saves that for later. He doesn't actually even mention because that will happen at the second coming, the parousia. And so we got to get in on this now while we can. But this idea of a of Messiah suffering on the cross, being humiliated uh, by his enemies, was not what many Israelites were looking for. They were looking for a military Messiah, somewhat like the zealots. We spoke of them earlier. Zeal is good. Even Jesus was obviously quite zealous. Zeal for your house will consume me, but it has to be rightly directed. So he's not conquering by military means. He's conquering hearts and minds and souls with the truth. And, and so in order for that to get out to people, there needs to be a preacher. And this is why he says in the next verse, in verse 17, So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. So we can use all the fancy techniques that we want, uh, and we, we should. We need to use the media. That's what Relevant Radio is all about, reaching Christ, uh, bringing Christ to the world through the media. And, but how do we do this? We do this primarily through the spoken word, through shows like The Faith Explained. When we, when we preach the gospel in all its fullness, and let the scriptures speak, because this is how God is going to get a hold of people. It's going to get a hold of you and me as well. And this is an interesting question in terms of uh, the rejection that he has in mind here by some. Paul says, I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So in a sense, he's saying people kind of have heard the message. Again, this is a, another great quotation. This is from Psalm 19, which speaks of the creation, the heavens telling the glory of God. Natural revelation. This was at the beginning of Romans. God has spoken to everybody through nature, through their conscience. But he's also given special divine revelation to Israel through the Torah, through the scriptures. And that's what the second half of that psalm is about. The first half of Psalm 19 is all about the glories of creation, the wonder of creation. God speaks through that. The second half is about the Torah, the Word of God being this incredible other mode of revelation in which uh, the message of the gospel is there incipient and it's brought out in all its fullness by Jesus Christ. And so we're going to pick it up again in the next episode as we conclude this little mini section within Romans on Israel. And we're going to find out how it will be in the end that all Israel will be saved and, and somehow even the lost tribes of Israel will come back to Christ. And what does that have to do with you and me, Gentiles in the church? That's all coming up in the next episode. But don't go away. We've got a great Q&A for you right now on The Faith Explained. 
As we open up the Faith Explained mailbag today, I want to remind you that you can email me your question. The address is faith, F-A-I-T-H, at relevantradio.com. And you can also follow me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. And you can get your question to me there by sending me a direct message or tagging me on that platform. So this uh, email question comes to me from, guess who? David Crockett, writing from Houston, Texas. That's right, Davy Crockett himself. I'm pretty sure it's not his real name, uh, but he's a big fan of the show and has written in before. And it's actually a great question. He says, hi, Kale. History points to the Romans eating only one meal a day. Would that have been true for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus also? Interesting question. I, I, I was not aware that the Romans subsisted on one meal a day. I'll have to do some, some research on that. Um, that's intriguing. But what about, what about what he's actually asking? What about Jesus? What did Jesus eat in a day? Well, he goes on to say this, uh, Kale, there's lots of interest in fasting now on all your relevant shows. And, and no doubt what he's referring to there is the hashtag fast for life, which we, we're doing. Um, we do this a couple times a year, especially around the March for life. And we can do it at any time, of course, fast for life, relevantradio.com slash fast. If you want some more information on that, uh, David Crockett continues with his email. He says, as a fan of uh, the couch potato way of intermittent fasting, mostly daily now, I started looking at where this concept of three square meals a day came from, which then led to my question. How did Jesus and his followers, like the Twelve, eat daily? We need to defeat gluttony. We need to apply spiritual fasting where possible. But for me personally, I find historical context enhances my faith. God bless the whole Relevant Radio family. Signed, David Crockett. Thank you, David. Um, King of the Wild Frontier. We're going we're gonna to try to answer this, this wild question. I, I think it's really intriguing. What did Jesus eat in a day? Well, I did, I did find a piece um, that was written at, uh, at Loyola Press, and uh, this was written by Jim Campbell. And he kind of investigated th this question, how did people eat in the first century Jewish world, which is exactly, exactly the world that Jesus found himself in. And he says this, that essentially, there was a great variety of foods available in the Holy Land at the time of Jesus. There are lots of different crops, and, and these are mentioned, by the way, in the Gospels, especially in the parables of Jesus. The crops of wheat, or the wheat and the tares, that parable, barley, olives, grapes, legumes, lentils, fava beans. I don't know if they were served with a nice Chianti, those fava beans, but I, I digress. Uh, chickpeas, vegetables such as onions, leeks, garlic. Life was also made sweeter with fruits like olives, grapes, date palms, apples, watermelon, pomegranates. This is, man, this is, this is pretty great. Uh, I'm getting hungry here. Figs, sycamores. Now, what are sycamores? Sycamores are actually kind of a, as he calls them, a low-quality fig eaten mainly by the poor. So there are different tiers of figs, I guess you could say. People also raised sheep, goats, cattle. There's fishing, obviously a huge industry. <laughs> the Zebedee brothers, of course, Zebedee and Sons Fishing Company, Peter, Andrew, they were all involved in fishing the Sea of Galilee. In terms of beverages, um, wine fermented from grapes. That, that was the main mainstay there. Um, and apparently, this is this is what people ate for breakfast. They would simply have uh, a piece of bread and, and maybe a piece of fruit to go with it. Bread was baked every day. Uh, ladies would, would, that was one of the main things they did every day was bake bread. 
And around lunchtime, midday, there would be a light lunch of bread, grain, olives, and figs. The main meal, there's really one main meal that was eaten at the end of the day. Very often it was a one-pot stew. So you kind of you've got the instant pot out there, you've got the crock pot. I love one-pot stews, don't you? It's kind of easy just to have everything in one bowl. And that's exactly what they did very often. And what they would use is their own bread to kind of eat the stew. The bread would be kind of like a spoon. And it could be kind of a thick porridge. And maybe this is the kind of stuff that that Esau really loved. And then, you know, uh, uh, the whole lovely story of Jacob and Esau tricking him out of his birthright for a mess of pottage, as it says. Yeah, maybe this is the, this is the good stuff. But at any rate... Um, Vegetables, lentils, chickpeas, spiced with herbs. Wow, this is just serving to, uh, this is not exactly assuaging my hunger. It's making me, whew. But uh, meat was pretty rare. Meat was pretty rare. It was more of a fish-based diet. And in fact, if you think about Magdala, Magdala, the name Magdala means fish tower. That's a big industry where Mary of Magdala was from. But you would serve meat very often when you had an important guest, and that's when you would sort of kill the fattened calf. They would keep calves, lambs, and stalls and, and kind of fatten them up so that when an important guest came by or a big feast, you could make it happen. And this is exactly what happens in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Hey, you killed the fatted calf for this guy? You've, you just wasted your property? So meals are obviously a very, very holy time. A lot of great fellowship, intimacy at meals. Um, people thanked God not only for the food that they ate, but understanding that God gave them the power uh, and the grace to be able to get out there and, and earn a living to, to provide for their families. Fellowship, not only with one another, but with God. And it was a big, big deal. Hospitality in the first century world was a really big deal. And this often centered around meals. The the, par- the parables that Jesus tells really, really uh, bring this home. And, and inviting strangers and sojourners for meals was also crucial in the culture because they too, the Jewish people, were aliens and strangers in Egypt, and God provided for their needs, and they were expected to show that to other people as well, the widows, the orphans. And this is what God says, for remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 22. But maybe the best example of this, about how God can be found in the midst of a meal, is the account in Luke chapter 24 of the road to Emmaus. The risen Christ uh, walks alongside these downtrodden disciples. They have abandoned all hope. Christ has been crucified. They think he's dead. They think the mission is over. But of course, Jesus opens the scriptures to them, the world's greatest scripture study, by the word of God incarnate. And their hearts are on fire. And as it's getting dark, he says, he acts as if he's going to keep going. And they say, please stay with us. And they offer him hospitality and food. And at the meal, this is where Jesus breaks the bread. And in fact, the Eucharist takes place. And they realize it's Jesus. And then he is no longer there in his physical resurrected body. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus did ascend into heaven, because he doesn't want to distract us from his Eucharistic presence. So a meal is always very important to the people of God, especially that of the Eucharist. Thanks to James Campbell for uh, for writing that piece on what Jesus would have eaten along with everybody else in the first century world in his time. How interesting. Always interesting to get a, an insight into his life and imagine it and it can become more real to us. You can write your question to me at The Faith Explained and here's how you do it. By email at, sorry, faith at relevantradio.com and you can find me on 
the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E-O. Catch you later today on the Kale Clark Show live at 5 p.m. Central and in 23 and a half hours from now on the next episode of The Faith Explained. Share the podcast with a friend. God bless.